Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I give us welcome tonight a few distinguished visitors who have come to listen to this talk on gospel. I might tell you, Lord Balfour, Sir John Salmon, Sir John Slesser, Sir James Robb, and some others, perhaps. I might go on a long time to mention them. It's very nice of them to come, and we welcome their attendance. Now tonight, we're going to get a sort of triple lecture. Group Captain Treadry is going to lead off. Mr. Nippian Bishop is going to follow. And then Group Captain Treadry is going to finish. Now, they've all, both of them had a lot of flying instruction and been flying instructors. Group Captain Treadry has been Netherhaven and he's on the CFS course in 1935. I understand he's the director of a publishing firm of William Blackwood at the present time. Mr. Bishop had been in a number of flying clubs and was a Royal Air Force instructor in, at Red Hill and Carlisle. He then, might almost say, wandered about the world, but he's now very interested in the club at Croydon and Redhill, specializing in aerobatic instruction and displays. I won't keep you longer, but I'll ask them to start their lecture on the early days of the Gosport School of Flying. Ladies and gentlemen, there are here tonight um, some who were architects with Smith Barry of the Gosport system. Uh, Smith Barry himself once said to a company of you, I wrote the alphabet and you wrote the classical works. And we're not therefore presuming to tell you what you did, but attempting to describe what you did and paying a tribute to Smith Barry and to you who were his friends and brothers in arms. Well, the Society does honor to the memory of Robert Smith Barry in asking us to talk about his life and achievements in this, the 50th anniversary year of the foundation of the Royal Flying Corps. He was one of the great men of those momentous days. Robert Raymond Smith Barry was born in 1886 he was educated at Eton and Cambridge, and he went in the consular service to Constantinople in 1909. He learned to fly at Lark Hill, 1911, and Gordon Ingram was one of his instructors, still with us. And the next couple of years, he did some sort of instructing, as Smith Barry, it must have been of a very primitive order. But in um, 1912, he was commissioned into the um, Special Reserve of the Royal Flying Corps and went through the first um, CFS course, which began in 1912. We've got a slide of Smith Barry himself at that time. And the second picture, um, the first Central Flying School course. He's in the second row, the fourth from the left. Rather prophetically, um, Ferdy Waldron's got his hand on his shoulder, 
as much as to say I shall want you one day for number 60 squadron. Um, Lord Trenchard, um, Major Trenchard as he then was, is also in the second row, and far away on the right. The redoubtable Godfrey Payne in the middle, and um, a Captain Kirby VC, their quartermaster, the bottom on the right, a very distinguished first course. Major John Salmon was one of his instructors then, and he said that he found Smith Barry to be a very interesting and independent-minded performer. Well, um, August 1914, the air contingent formed and flew out to France to support the British Expeditionary Force. In number five squadron, um, Smith Barry was one of the of the pilots. They had Henri Farman's Avro 504s and the bloater, the BE-8. Now it's useful, I think, straight away to consider Smith Barry's family background. On his father's side, he belonged to the family of the Earls of Barrymore. His mother was a daughter of the Earl of Inniskillen. And if you uh, spread out his family tree, you find that um, these two families, they'd intermarried with other uh, property-owning um, noble families. Uh, the Barrymores, they'd hunted their own foxhounds. They'd been admirals of the Royal Cork Yacht Squadron, run their own yachts when a yacht was an expensive thing with a paid skipper and crew. And you see at once such names as, I've got them, some of them down here, the Earls of Cork, Donegal, Rivers, Dunraven, Chumley, Viscount Mount Cashel, Lords Tabley, Willoughby de Brook, Colerne and Strange. Those were his uncles, his cousins, and his forebears. And these were men who were accustomed to rule. They acted with a freedom and a fearlessness of thought. It was as natural to them as the air they breathed. And I think if one remembers that, it gives it's a key to a lot of his actions afterwards. When I went back to France in 1914, the atmosphere in which he worked, it's worth looking into um, Maurice Baring's book, HQRFC. It's an extraordinary picture. August, you know, that summer, the harvest going on, um, after Mons, the whole of the BEF in retreat, these four squadrons um, doing reconnaissance for them, and every morning the transport would move off uh, in front uh, Brook Popham with Morris Bearing with him. They were sitting on a portmanteau of gold and they used to buy anything they wanted with it. Um, rations, oil, petrol. Um, they once bought a Blerio and added it to their establishment. And they'd pick out their field, uh, move away the sheaves of corn, and then the squadrons at the end of the day would land on there um, five Squadron's operational diary says that they'd requisitioned their transport uh, in London, a lot of it, and one of the things they took with them was an enormous van painted a brilliant red with uh, the name of a source in gold letters on the side, the world's appetizer. And, of course, the, the, the pilots just honed on this. Um, that was their beacon for the end of the day. And at night, there was the whole of the Flying Corps, um, the two brothers, John and Geoffrey Salmon, were there, and 
there was the pilots burrowing their, their little quarters into the sides of haystacks and the headquarters typing out their reports by candlelight in their tents. It sounded, seems as though it's straight out of the Napoleonic Wars. Well, Smith Barry crashed in a bloater. It uh, went out of control and he crashed from 60 feet. His mechanic was killed and he broke both legs. And Lord Balfour said just before the lecture that he was in a cellar in Amiens and the German cavalry were entering the town. So he called an old four-wheeler cab, had himself put into it, um, evacuated himself, um, then by rail to Rouen and so back to England. Now, his injuries didn't stop him flying because he went along to North Holt and found an old five-squadron commander in charge there, Major Carmichael. And Carmichael got him back onto flying again, instructing and anti-Zeppelin controls, anti-Zeppelin patrols. And in 1916, the Fokkers were becoming a menace, and at that time there were as many as three scouts escorting one photographic reconnaissance machine. So they formed some new um, scout squadrons hurriedly. One of them, 60 Squadron, a Ferdy Waldron commanding, he picked uh, as his flight commanders Smith Barry, Summers, and Tower. Somebody pointed out that all four of them were Old Etonians. They went off um, with such speed and dispatched to France that when Dundas Heenan, who had been responsible for equipping them, uh, popped his head back into England again. Uh, a court-martial warrant was planted on him, um, and he was he was charged um, for eighty-eight thousand pounds worth of unaccounted-for stores. He managed at the last moment with Smith Barry's help to get round that one. But um, Smith Barry often said he was a, a temporary gentleman with war-winning ideas, and um, paperwork never appealed to him very much. Uh, two other young officers in the squadron at the time, uh, now Lord Portal and Lord Balfour. They were in 60 Squadron with these redoubtable characters. Now they had um, um, Morans, parasols, high wing, and bullets, the low wing monoplane. Trenchard didn't want them to have them, but he let them have their way because they were tricky and unstable aeroplanes of a rather primitive and empirical design and gave them a lot of trouble. Now this was the time when the Somme battles were raging, Verdun was on. In ten months the French and the Germans between them lost three quarters of a million men wounded and killed and Haig had to keep on fighting right through the summer to drain off some of the German offensive. And of course the Flying Corps itself it took a terrific caning um, Waldron was killed, Smith Barry was promoted to command the squadron. Well, he flew himself on, on the patrols, but he had the courage to say to his chief, I suppose it was Lord uh, Dowding then, who was commanding the wing, he refused to send some new pilots up. He said they've only got seven hours on the type, and it's just bloody murder. He wouldn't let them go. And Bering said that these machines had more casualties than any other type in the whole of the Flying Corps during the war, 
and when they were half destroyed, they were taken out of the line to re-equip with new ports. Uh, Smithsbury sat down to think this out, why they'd been losing so many machines and not doing as well as they should have done in battle, and it has occurred to me that the way he flew himself may have helped to give him some of the clues to what came afterwards. He was, as you know, an impulsive and aggressive flyer. He loved frightening others with his abrupt aerial antics. And certainly when he drove a car, he didn't go around the circumference of a curve. He went through a right angle. And I think his flying was like that too. Bank on and rudder on in that order, take them off and um, to stay in and put them on again to come out. You did a turn as you did a drill turn on the barrack square, and presumably he must have thought, let's see what happens if you do every other flying maneuver in this uh, numerical fashion. He had been criticizing for a long time the uh, what he thought was the low standard of the training of young pilots in England. Uh, they were just fokker fodder when they came out to him. And uh, one of his young pilots... Sidney Parker, who later commanded Gosport, um, he said how he learnt to fly on a longhorn in 1915. He called it a monstrous and clattering machine. He did uh, three hours flying with three different instructors, and one night when everybody was shutting down and going back to the mess or to the billets, his instructor said, well, off you go solo. So he went off, and Parker said, when he got into the air, he stood up and tried to rock it, like a boot. He said it was as solid as a church. So he came down and landed, walked back to the mess, and his instructor said he was kind enough to look up and say, say hello, you back. Um, and that was how things went. He did a short course at Upham and came back to Farnborough himself. And uh, as Parker said, I went on instructing in just the same way as my instructors behaved towards me. I knew no other way. The instructors, as you know, they called their pupils Huns because they broke so many aeroplanes, they were more used to the Germans than they were to us. And even a spin was a thing wrapped in mystery that um, was looked on as an act of God. So in um, November and December 1916, Smith Barry sat down and wrote three historic letters. In the first, drawing on his own experience as an instructor, he said that I think we ought to do dual right through training. Don't finish when the man's gone solo. Um, alternate the whole thing, dual solo, dual solo, right up to the end of his course. Don't um, put the pupil behind you. The instructor in these early machines with the controls and the instruments sitting in front, the pupil looking over his shoulder, occasionally putting his hands around to feel the control column. He said, I always stand that will sit at the back myself and let the pupil have the controls and instruments and it seems to work rather well. Better still, let's have duplicated controls in all training aeroplanes and then the instructor can be responsible all the time and you can fly in much worse weather than you could otherwise. He'd worked with four Avros, had them on the go, quite trouble-free. A couple of them did 200 hours between overhauls, and when he left, all four were written off in a month. Shows the difference in the methods. His second letter, he said, let's fit up um, 
a few scouts with dual in the front line uh, to give these pilots experience before they go into battle. His third letter, he concentrated, this is where the whole kernel of the thing came, he concentrated on training instructors. Uh, pick out good scout pilots, get their flying right up scratch, and you'll breed a sort of corps d'elite of instructors, and that will um, permeate right through the training organization. Trenchard, he could easily have said to Smith Barrett, this very trying time, um, don't bother me, go away and get on with your proper job of running um, number 60 squadron, but he said, all right, Smith Barry, you can go home, try out your ideas, and don't let yourself down, don't let me down. So they had a farewell guest night on Christmas Eve, 1916, not many of the officers there survived long because next April they met the German Air Force over Air Service over Arras and in a month they suffered 107% casualties in pilots and replacements. Um, lastly, before we come on to Gosport proper, it wouldn't be true to say that nothing was being done at home to put things right because everybody was working frantically increasing the amount of flying pupils did, improving their exercises in gunnery, photography, and the rest of it. But they wanted something really far-reaching to match up these Fokkers, and Smith Barry was going to be the man who helped provide it. General Salmon was then um, commanding the training division in England, and he gave Smith Barry a completely free hand to work out his own ideas with number one reserve squadron at Gosport. Smith Barry kicked off with um, three of his old 60 squadron pilots as flight commanders, Bell Irving, Parker and S.F. Vincent, and Philippi was with him too, I think as adjutant. And in January, this cold January 1917, they worked out their first primitive syllabus and patter. They got a bunch of Huns from the ground school at Reading, and that was their first course. Now, unbeknown to themselves, um, these pioneers were being watched first through some school windows in South Sea, and then from inside the aerodrome itself by a boy named C. A. Nepean Bishop. And he spent a year with a temporary pass inside that aerodrome, and he wrote down everything he saw and heard in a diary, which is, here it is, on the platform in front of us now. And he will now tell us what happened at Gosport during 1917 and 1918. Well, first a few words about Gosport Aerodrome itself. Up to the time that Smith Bay was given the go-ahead to put his scheme to action, Gosport, or as it was then known, Fort Grange Aerodrome, had been just another one of the early Royal Flying Corps stations, largely given over to the training, if so it could then be called, of new pilots for the service. It first became truly active with the outbreak of the Great War, but it had been connected with the flying some time before this. In fact, Dr. A.P. Thurston, M.B., was conducting experiments there together with a Mr. Patrick Y. Alexander in 1909 and 10. These experiments taken the form of tests on, to quote him, the automatic stability of flying machines. 
During the latter part of 1914, aircraft flight in the field were mainly of the BE type, but in 1915 more variation was to be observed. As well as the aforementioned BEs, mostly BE2Cs, the Henry Farmer was much in evidence, together with the Morris Farmers, both long-horned and short-horned varieties. These were, there were, during the following year, the majority of current types to be seen, such as the Codron Trainer, with a gliding angle of a proverbial brick, uh, because gun buses, as they were called, Moran and Blerio monoplanes, Martinside Scouts, Bristol Bullets, DH-1s, and of course the Avro 504, not then the outstanding trading machine it was destined to become. During 1916, there were a couple of fighter squadrons stationed at the aerodrome, numbers 41 and 42, the former commanded by Major Mulholland, but the farmers were the most familiar types to be seen about the place, sometimes not always in one piece. Early in 1917, seemed to the outside observer to be following the same pattern, but with the addition of the Sopwith one and a half strata and Pups joining the throng. But towards the latter part of that year, things began to show a very obvious change. Smithbury had arrived. The first signs of obvious change were the increase, was the increase in the number of aerobatic maneuvers to be seen over the aerodrome, particularly as regards spinning, a thing which up to then had been regarded as a killer. Every day could now be seen being performed in 504 aerodromes, and to the present speaker at that time to find a boarding school, it caused some wonderment and speculation. Then one evening at the seaside resort of nearby Southsea, it was really shown what had been going on during the spring and summer of 1917, when an Avro arrived over the common land behind the seafront, proceeded to loop, roll, stir, stall, turn, and generally beat up the place for a full 20 minutes before, before departing Gosport wards at the end of this period. Many were the rumours abounding after this display, the most popular one being that the pilot was suffering from an incurable disease and did not care whether he killed himself or not. However, this was very far from being the case. As I said before, Smith Barry had arrived, together with his system of flying training. What had happened? From January 1917, Major as he then was, Smith Barry had been given command of number one training squadron, which I believe was later renamed number one reserve squadron. This being stationed at Gosport, of course. Smith Barry had been given a very free hand in the organization, so free, in fact, that he could do more or less what he wanted. Together with S.E. Parker and G. Philippi, he had evolved the first system of flying tuition to be properly committed to paper, a system which was to become the backbone and the sub of the subsequent central flying school pattern of the post-war years, and one that is to a very great extent still basically followed. Uh, early in 1917, January 1917, Smith issued his instructors to flight commanders. This is what he said, and this is what in effect they said. Efficient instruction is your job. No, no time is to be wasted. Pupils are not to be left hanging about. If you have a dual machine, then the owners of all smashes is on you. That must have been popular. You must test each pupil before fl by flying as his passenger before letting him make his first solo. Pupils are not to go into the scout flight, which is the scouts, I believe, before they can fly safely in any weather, or are likely to be, uh, they are likely to meet overseas. They must know stalling, turning sharply, taking off, and landing across wind. You can let pupils go off duty whenever you choose. See that those in the sheds get to know the men and machines. You have great liberty and great responsibilities. Run your own shows. Treat your officers in the same way. Reprehend with extreme severity any advantages that may be taken of such latitude. Thirteen pupils reported from the classroom of the School of Aeronautics at Reading. They had, two had flown previously as observers. 
The rest were regimental officers seconded, seconded to the RFC, and they had never been in the air before. The first Gosport course was completed in nine weeks instead of the usual fifteen. Outside staff set the written and gunnery tests, written exams and gunnery tests, and the pupils, to round off their training, piloted a formation of Bristol fighters, heavy fighting machines that were amongst the most up-to-date in the RFC. Smith-Berry summarized, summarized the lessons he and his staff had learned in, in a pamphlet which he called Notes on Cheating Flying for the Instructor's Courses. Some may, may think his methods peculiar, he said, but, but most will consider them normal or even old-fashioned. The chief thing is dual. Instructors and pupils flying together. We use it to teach every possible maneuver, from taking off crosswind to spinning. Get the pupil solo first, give him most of his duel later. Thus, bad flying habits can be arranged before they become fixed, arrested, sorry, before they become fixed. Let advanced pilots and pupils fly as they choose, their experiments being limited only to the state of their nerves. This causes no increase in casualties. The instructor always flies in the passenger seat, and this, is, this of course, deprives him of, deprives him of his instruments. But, quote, I take it that a flyer who could not do without instruments would have less to teach than to learn. The object has not been to prevent flyers from getting into difficulty or dangers, but to show them how to get out of them satisfactorily and having done so. To make them go and repeat the process, and having done so, to make them go and repeat the process alone. If the pupil considers this dangerous, let him find some other employment, as whatever risk I ask him to run here, he will have to run a hundred times as much when he gets to France. As most of the exposed dangers are not dangers at all, but both easy and pleasant, it would be a simple matter for the pupil to be taught, chiefly by example, to be frightened of nothing compared to the flying on this side of the lines. The machines used, continue the notes, were nine Avros, three dual Sopwiths, and six Bristol fighters. Most of the flying was done on Avros. The Sopwiths had the usual scouts' tendency to slew on the ground. They were fast, had a steep climb, and a difficult glide. The engine was difficult too, quote, a man who can drive this engine can drive any. Speaking tubes have been installed. Previously, simple hand signals have been used in the air to convey orders or limited information. For more general talk, the instructor had shut down the engine and stalled the machine. This is, has given a useful in indication of the state of the pupil's nerves, that those who are likely to be unsuitable for scouts generally cling to the side with an unintelligent expression, instead of conversing fluency and with confidence. I do still. <laughs> These telephones now fitted, the telephones now fitted will simplify matters if and when they are a success, which they were, of course. Uh, now in the notes follows the methods of instruction, the first outline of which what later became known in the RAF as the sequence of instruction and the patterbook. More quotes. Driving the machines. Straight flying, turns, landings. These can be started in quite bumpy weather. Signals. Useful old signals such as waggling the hand or Put patting the chief on the top of the head to indicate manoeuvres required, presumably put down before the gospel tubes arrived. <laughs> flying straight, climb above the bumps and let the pupil try. If he cannot get the thing at least to fly straight in the first few minutes, I turn him out there and then. A bit strict. Pulling the controls about. Make them do it without much regard for the position the machine adopts and don't help him to recover unless absolute necessary. It is often necessary to use full lock. Half the spinning accidents and slewing on the ground are through using the controls too feebly. Turning. Print a simple card giving the control uses in the three stages of the turn, going in, staying in, and coming out. Make the pupil do this by clockwork and show him how simple it is. Take off and landings. Fly tight circuits and let him do the rest. This doubles the amount of practice. 
Driving the engine. Fit one up on the ground and let him practice with it. Going off alone. At first his landings will be good, but he will soon go off unless he has a few minutes duel at the beginning of each day. Let him do anything he likes in the air except aimless circuits. By brief methods of duel, proceed to spin, stall, tur turns, maximum time, fighting another machine, then fighting another pupil with a camera gun. Give him sudden engine cuts for forced landing practice. Plenty of this. Crosswind landings. Show him that even before his first solo, in this. Fly with one wing down and sidestep to counteract drift. It's not the two-seater. Half an hour's duel should be enough. Let him fly it solo for two, and a three, two or three hours, then brush up his landings again on an abro. Lastly, give him about five hours solo on the Bristol. Quote, up to now there have been no smashes through stunting. He is then ready for overseas. That was the general outline, and uh, the system, can be, if, if it can be so be called, is merely a plan, this is quoting again, for making the fullest use of dual control. The instructor is directly responsible for all smashes during the first solo or any other time. The better the instructor, the fewer the smashes. These are always a these are always caused by a failure to do something properly. And they have been eliminated almost entirely on machines fitted with dual controls. With dual, doubtful pilots can be detected and eliminated early. Also, it allows tuition to go on in almost any weather. This gives the pupil confidence. Likewise, flying can stop at set times, and everybody knows with a fair amount of certainty when they can get away in the evening. The rule here in the summer months is to fly early morning and shut down every evening unless it is absolutely unavoidable. unavoidable. Much attention has been paid to stopping pupils hanging around the sheds without any flying, for well, this makes them stale and discontented, and is no good for learning. Of course, it's much easier for instructors to have their pupils always on tap, but a little thought can solve this and let the pupils get more technical instruction. General Salmon was, con was con concerned with all forms of RAF RFC training and was soon become Director General of Military Aviation, Aeronautics, and a member of the Air Ca Army Council. But he found time to visit Gosport and fly with Swift Bay and examine his methods of, methods of instruction. Afterwards, he flew solo to try out the advance maneuvers they had been practicing, he said. Smith Barry was now flying around in another machine with a pupil, but I knew he had his eye on me. <laughs> Later, a big demonstration was held for the visiting staffs, and they saw pupils who had only been, had 14 days' tuition looping and spinning. Then 13 of the pupils were sent up to fly in formation. Only one made a mistake by overshooting at the end of the demonstration, tipping the machine on its nose in the moat at the Port Rauner. Number 27 and 55 Squadron had, be, had been providing attachments to aerodromes around London for night patrols against Zeppelins being stationed at Gosport. Now they were taken off this and flew to number one reserve squadron to give the required establishment of men and machines. The combination was renamed the School of Special Flying and charged with the duties of developing the system of flying, the training of qualified pilots as instructors on a two-week course. Smith Barry is appointed, appointed, appointed commandant and promoted to lieutenant colonel. The school was greatly uh, helped by the appearance of the, in the autumn of 1970 in the Avro 504J, powered by the 100 horsepower monosprop engine. It was suitable for every kind of maneuver, and Smith Barry exploited it to the full. He had six flights, each with six to ten Avros, and a soppet camel for each flight commander. The pupils flew solo from the rear cockpits, so the instructors now taught from the front seats. A, a letter was sent to Captain Biggs, HQ staff. The six pupils you saw in formation were the six best who had averaged five and a half hours solo. Sixteen raw pupils arrived on the 3rd of September. By the 11th of September, 13 had achieved nine hours dual and three and a half hours solo each. 
Letter from the GOC Training Division, Royal Flying Corps. Submit report on the 13 pupils and on your tra on the training methods so that these methods may be standardized throughout the division. With his report, Smith Bay sent yet another experiment he had tried. While he still had his old machines, he had organized them into three separate groups. Each had a, a batch of pupils and its own share of avros, softwares, and bristols. The instructors kept their pupils right through the course, teaching them on each machine in turn. Each machine had one engine man and one rigger. Vanity gives better results. Everyone liked the scheme and preferred it to the pupils moving from flight to flight as they progressed. Smith Barry also enclosed papers by two of his officers, one by Major Parker covering the whole training in five and a half five half hour lessons, from the elementary handling of controls to air fighting, the other by Captain Gilchrist set out the patter used over the Gosport telephones when demonstrating manoeuvres. The most difficult part of the instructor's art is to make the aircraft do what he wants to do, describing in simple, synchronized words what is happening as it happens, all the time keeping a good lookout in the air. On these typewritten sheets were masterly examples of this art, some of the earliest of their kind. In October, Smith Barry reports, Smith Barry's reports were printed in a form of a pamphlet and issued throughout the Royal Flying Corps under the, net, under the title General Methods of Teaching Scout Pilots. In this way, his influence was brought to bear at home and abroad, long before Gosport trained instructors and pupils were able to make their own effect felt. In November, the Air Board decreed that new Avros were to become standard machines for elementary and intermediate training. The list of machines declared obsolete for this work. Armstrong Whitworths, Morris Farmers, RE8s, Bristol B, Bristols, BEs, De Havilland's, Martinside and Sopwiths. This shows how cluttered the schools have become with machines. Many excellent for combat work, but not ever to show flying. The Avro 504 had arrived. Another report went from Gosport to Duke Street. 23 pilots had arrived on the 3rd of September. None had flown before. They passed out on the 11th of November, each having an average 11 to 23 hours dual and 10 to 25 hours solar. Some had managed 12 hours flying in frontline machines, such as Bristol Fighters, Sopwith Camels and Sopwith Scouts. The only smashes had been two Avros and a buckle and a carriage on a scout. Uh, it is now appropriate to say a few words about the aircraft that was to become so famous as a flying training aircraft, not only in Great Britain, but on, in many other parts of the world. The first 504 appeared in 1913 and was outwardly little different to those used at Gosport five years later. Here is a picture of the prototype. The difference from the fiber for the 70 production models was that in the top, in this, the top fuselage longerons were straight from engine to cowling to rudder, whilst in those that follow it, followed it, they would slope slightly downwards after the rear cockpit. The engine was a 60, an 80 horsepower no, no more no monster part or their own rotary. Following these aircraft came the 504A, which was generally strengthened up and had shorter span ailerons as its predecessor, and an 80 gnome or their own as power plant. More or less contemporary was this was the 504B, asked for by the Royal Naval Air Service. This had stronger spars, long span to the inner interplane strut ailerons, an unbalanced rudder with fin, the same engine type, with extra tankage, giving it an endurance of four and a half hours. 504C was similar, but was built as a single-seater with extra tankage in the front cockpit space, thus giving it an endurance of eight hours with an 80 gnome engine. It was designed for coastal reconnaissance and had a Lewis gun which pointed upwards at 45 degrees. What help this was is not known by the present speaker. 
504D was a similar aircraft built for the Royal Air Flying Corps, but in, the, in this short-span ailerons, in the midway between the inner and outer interplane struts, were again fitted. The comma rudder was again used, and the aircraft with its 18-ohm engine had no fin. There is no evidence that this variant was ever built. Once again, the Royal Naval Air Service wanted something different. Upon their Navy Row & Co. produced the 504E, in which the rear cockpit was moved far enough back to enable a fuel tank to be placed between the cockpits. Wind stagger was reduced, and the aircraft had a fin and rudder of the 504B. There were many other small differences, and only ten of the type were built. The 504F was but one in number, a 504C fitted with a Rolls-Royce Hawk engine of 75 horsepower. And there was a certain amount of doubt as to what was the 504G. The designation being used equally for an RFC gunnery trainer with 130 horsepower flirte, and also for an RNS 18-ohm 504Bs converted to take a synchronized front Vickers gun and a scarf ring in the back cockpit. The 504H was a strengthened 504C with catapult pickup points. One of the first aircraft successfully launched in this way was this type, flown by pilot R.E. Penny. Nothing is known of the 504I. So this brings up to the model of 1917, the 504J, with Wither's successor, the 504K, bore the brunt of flying training at Gosport, and subsequently for the number of years after the war. The 504J was in many respects similar to this, the, the machines that preceded, but by this time the power plants had been standardized as a 100 horsepower mononome. It still carried the familiar bulbous cowling that was a fleet of the earliest aircraft. The picture here, C4451, in April was in April 1918, with a flight at Gosport. In this view, taken in 1919, she has been flown by His Royal Highness the Prince Albert, later to become His Majesty King George VI, together with an instructor, with his instructor at that time. Here are some other views of 504Js of 1918-19. That would be 4246. Uh, the 504K was a generally cleaned up version of the J, and appeared early in 1918, sometime after certain experiments in Gosport and elsewhere, to which reference would later be made. Dawn was the different distinctive cowling of the previous marks, and instead was the more, gen more general type used in other contemporary machines using rotary engines. Initially, power was supplied by 110 horsepower alone, sometimes 130 horsepower clergy, although later on mon the mononome became standard again. Shown here is D7623, similar in all respects to aircraft which started coming to Gosport in the early part of 1918. Performance figures for those interested. Maximum speed 100 miles per hour, minimum speed 45 miles an hour, duration 2.5 hours, climb to 10,000 feet 15 minutes, tank is 22 gallons, engine data. Revolutions on ground 1100, normal full 1250, maximum possible for not more than 5 minutes 1300, air square diameter 8 feet, Air pressure per square inch, two pounds, presumably for fuel pressure. The VAB information was from the data pilot of Lerone Avro D7605, which was that used by Captain Duncan, Dundas Heenan in the early part of 1918. I made that see him here tonight in the second row. <coughs> right, taking full advantage of the latitude given him, informing the, S, informing the school, Smith SB, as he was familiarly called, although not perhaps to his face, had rode far and wide in his selection of staff, and he had gathered above him all that was best in the, of the, from the men available to him, men that could not only fly well, but knew how to impart their skill to others, an attribute that is given to comparatively few. Judging by the condition of the aircraft, his ground staffs were equally well chosen. 
If I may be forgiven, I must now go on to a rather more personal note, for it was this time I became involved with Gosport. During the period of which I have already spoken, I had been at school at Southsea, and at the end of 1917, the commanding officer of the local officer's training corps squadron, the 1917 equivalent of today's combined unit force, arranged for certain of us should be detailed to go over to Fort Grange during our Christmas holidays of the year and help, or hinder, the mechanics of the, in the repair and maintenance of aircraft there. This, in due course, came about, and from the beginning of 1918, I was unable for some months to get in and out of the aerodrome unimpeded. Altogether, although this very satisfactory for a schoolboy state of affairs did not last as long as I would have wished. Major Parker used to turn me out latterly. However, it did provide me with the opportunity of getting a considerable amount of inside information about the school, information that is now of great historical interest, although I should make it clear that, as a great difficulty, a great deal of it came from the lips of the ACAMAs, air mechanics of the period, should not all be regarded as being 100% correct. The flying side of the organization consisted of, as I said, six flights of Avro 504Js and Ks, each flight being letter from A to F in the traditional manner of the period. Each flight an SB to call all of its own, with distinctive markings to all of its aircraft. In the early months of 1918, A-flight aircraft had the wheel disc painted all white all over, and on the side of the fuselage after the roundel was a white or black triangle, depending on to which, whether the fuselage was dark or light colored. B-flight aircraft sported wheel discs were white and light blue, half-moon style. C-flight discs were dark blue, while D decided on red, its propeller tips also being finished off with this color. E-flight wheels were white with red center, and while F-flight had black with a white center. Sorry, yes, F, sorry. F-flight also had a small red disc off the fuselage round, and a little above its center line. That was in 1918, in 1917, rather, 18 there were certain changes. Serial numbers were not at this time always carried out of the main planes, and like certain other units of the period, the School of Special Flying had its own marking, a wavy dark blue-black line under the lower wing. This extended from the fuselage to the round line. In addition to the main flights, there was a further large hangar known as the salvage, to which any damaged aircraft for central repairs, and adjoining this was a further large building, this being known as headquarters flight. To this came the repaired aircraft from salvage, and all new aircraft delivered to the school, whether by road or air. In command here in January was Captain Dundas Heenan. I nearly had my first flight with him here, but was turned out by the warrant officer in charge as the machine B-4264 was experimental, of which more or none. That is uh, F. Dudley Hobbs with his machine. I think it was. Uh, I think in those days it was an uh, F flight. That that uh, marking was also a flight later on. That's the view inside Captain Heenan's headquarters flight, showing some of the machines in for overhaul. That's one of the. That was one of the early conversions from Mono 504J to Lerone 504K. That was uh, one of the early clergy avos, D101, not converted to Gosport as far as I know. It belonged to CFS in those days. One of the first few that was converted from mono to clergy. That is just, was just a visitor. The Avro Spider. I think there was only one built as far as I know. It just spent a few weeks there and then departed again. Right, reverting to the flying equipment. There were, in April 1918, of over 60 hours on charge. In addition, the various flight commanders had managed to acquire a with camels or more or less personal perks. These were painted according to taste. Various times there was a mauve camel, curly Dytons, a red camel, and a white one on the aerodrome. 
Forced on the strength were one or two other personal aircraft. These included two which were used by the CO, a supple one and a half strutter number B8912 and a 504J Avro B4221. The latter machine had, in, had the instruments removed from the rear cockpit, and in their stead was a complete set of small drawers in which the good colonel could pluck his small, should he require to fly away on extended visits. I think the Captain Heenan can tell us a story or two about these curled away trips, if you so choose. I hope you will, personally. Especially about the one in going to France with no petrol. The school's SP to call was a very fine order. Old time, uh, was a, a very high order. Old timers will recall that the mononome engine was not the most cleanest of it when it came to throwing all about, but each morning would see the aircraft in spotless condition, just as if they were out straight out of headquarters flight, which spoke volumes for the work put in overnight with the ground staffs. However, there was no question of overwork, for flying did not start till 9.30am and closed down sharp at 5pm. In this way, general fitness was maintained in the flying staffs, and the aircraft could be properly looked after, after, which, after with the result that in, in the end more qualified pilots and instructors were produced than if the working day had been longer. Experiments. In addition to its work in training instructors to instruct, Gosport became a species of experimental unit, and many were the new ideas tried out by its pilots. Firstly, there was an Avro serial B3157, which, as far as I can gather, was the first 504J to be converted to 504K standards. This at the time, uh, this was at the time when the standard aircraft was fitted with a 100 mononome. But this aircraft was fitted with a 130 horsepower clergy motor, which of course gave it a considerably increased performance. It was said to have been flown around the RFC training squadrons of the period, and it is of interest to note that shortly after this, Production of the 504J type seats and the K, which was in most respects similar to the B3157, but with 110 of own motor, started coming off the production lines. Credit for this must be given to SB, who suggested that the Avro should be built to accommodate any of the three current rotary engines. Then there was B4264, B4264 mentioned a little earlier. In January 1918, this had wings of reduced span fitted with only a single span interplane, single span interplane struts, according to according to the diary which I had at the time, had a curved tail. In April, this was reverted to standard, but with the gap reduced, the wing gap, reduced from the standard 5 foot 6 inches to 5 foot 1 and a quarter. This is the aircraft which I failed to get my first flight with Captain Eden. In March 1918, these short-span wings, or another pair, had been fitted to be 3155, which I was told had a short fuselage and was fitted with a mononome engine. Later, it was converted to take the Marone, at the same time made into a long-range single-seater with an extra tank in the rear co in the front cockpit area. By May 1919, it had reverted to standard 504J, though it is having been flown in by Captain Tank's true love on the early 1919. Still with more or less with the A-flight markings on. Another conversion which had a very short life concerned one of the Colonel's private aircraft, the Sopwith which he suddenly decided to have converted from a own to clergy, or vice versa, I forget which. This was duly done, and when ready, the great man stumped out of his car to test the aircraft. It said faster refused to start, and after some time of futile effort, SB got out of the cockpit in a furious rage, in order to be converted back to its previous state, which was immediately done. History does not relate what happened during the next, next test flight. Perhaps you could tell us that one, too. <laughs> Um, as we mentioned previously, that flying at Gosport ceased at 5 p.m. each day, with the result that in summertime bathing parties were, were popular among instructors, and most likely their pupils. As a result, it was no unusual matter at Southsea to see a covey of 504s flying along the seafront at what today would be considered a very low altitude, it was even then, in the direction of nearby Hailing Island, returning sometime later at an even lower height, 
after their dip. The local sands having been used for landing area. Other occasions involved the odd pilot who came of Pompey, Portsmouth, in order to impress his girlfriend, as witnessed the aerobatic display of 1917 described earlier. Closed air for a B-3157 was brought over one day and literally placed ribbons to, quote, modern parlance, before departing Gosford Woods again and presumably getting away with it. Quite apart from my own five trips, and by April I had been less this successful, the odd joyriding took place sometimes, even SB taking a young lady up in Monoair for a D-41 on the 25th of March, 1918. Twenty-one years later, I reminded him of this, and he promptly told me the name, her name. So I was concerned. A few words on some of these pilots concerned with the school would be of interest, together with their subsequent histories. One of the star turns of 1918 was the commander of sea flight, Captain Billy Williams, who normally flew C-4448, which machine was distinguished from the others by a broad band painted round the fuselage in the blue colouring of the flight, his flight. He was reputed to have landed and come to a stop inside the hangar on more than one occasion. I don't know if that's true, but I was told it I was quite often, I was told it on several occasions. Commander of B-Flight was Norman Brearley, flying C-4447, who after the war became one of the two great pioneers of Australian air transport. There were uh, C.W.H. Crawford, who in 1938 had risen to become AOC of 26 Group RAF Training Command, F.W. Hobbs, who wrote, later put in the system into print and in how to fly an instructor on an Avro, Lee Clutie, later well-known in South African aviation circles, Rodwell Banks of Ethel Frame, Roderick Hills, later to rise to be Director of Technical Development in the RAF, H. A. Hammersley of post-1919 air racing fame, and in 1934, CFI of the London University Air Squadron. Duncan Davis, who became moving spirit of Brooklyn's aviation, and Milner Dayton, or Dayton rather, I should say, who had who joined Number One Reserve Squadron on the 3rd of February 1917 as one of his first pupils, and who remained at Gosport right until the close down, until at least for the last six months or so, OC of six of A flight school special flying. In passing, I might remark, there's a boy, his aircraft, Mono Avro D-41, was my favourite aircraft. From, right from the time I first worked on her erection in HQ flight on the 21st January 18, to the actual day I succeeded in persuading someone to take me up for the first time. Not in that one, though. And talking of D-41, this pilot reminds me of an amusing couplet which he sent me recently. He's sitting over there, by the way. It's completely typifies the spirit of the school of special flying. It runs like this. There was a young pilot from Lee who was flying as straight as could be. Then D-41 looped around him for fun, and he finished his flip in the sea. I should mention that Lee was a seaplane station, then operating short seaplanes and FBA flying boats, which perforce flew very straight and very level. Before we finish with the personality, we must not forget another Gosportian who was to achieve fame was J.M. Robb, later Air Chief Master James Robb. CGB, DKB, DSO, DFC, AFC, which I believe I'm happy to say is also here tonight. I've described to you something of what was done by the men in the machines and the way, and the way they flew and the way, the way that was all their own. It did not matter in which way the wind happened to be blowing. It was, if it was not convenient to taxi across the aerodrome, then the takeoff was commenced outside the hangar and the landing made towards it. Those were the days when flying was flying, and slight breaches of discipline did not bring down the wrath of the chief flying instructors as it does now. It looked a little dangerous and probably was so, but there did not appear to be a higher percentage of mishaps than previously. In fact, there were probably less owing to the greater knowledge gained in the flying of the aircraft. By the middle of 1918, the Smith Bay method of flying training had been well and truly proved, and it was decided to extend the system elsewhere. As a result, other schools began to open up, 
whilst the original gospel organisation was reduced from six to three flights and renamed the South Western Area Flying Instructors School. This, thus it continues until the end of the war, after which it gradually dwindled until early March 1919, the aircraft were to other units and the school disbanded. That shows A, B and C flight in 19, late 1918, my favourite D-41 on the near right, somebody walking by the tail. And that ended the, the flying as the large Gosport. We try and keep the system, we try and do something similar down the Tiger Club at Red Hill now. We don't ne get nearly the encouragement they did in those days, with our aerobatics and things. Although not part of the Gosport story, just before I hand back to Group Captain Tradery, I want to say a few words of, on Smith Bay's post-war flying. In due course, he obtained himself an A license on Pussmoth. And in, 21, and in 1938, 21 years after he'd founded the Gosport School, he turned up at Brooklyn, where he was a member of the local club. It struck me that here was a first-class excuse for a party, which would at the same time celebrate the coming of age of British riding training and reunite the Commons of 1718. To cut a long story short, SB was all for it, and conceived the idea that it might be possible to hold it on the original officers' mess, in 19, uh, which in 1917 had been built inside the old moated Fort Grange, from which the aerodrome had taken its original name. To this end, he decides to fly down to find out, find out, taking the present speaker with him. He wanted, first of all, to call it a tamble, which at the time had been operated very busily by Air Service Training Limited. This we did, landing into the prevailing wind, which that day was blowing from the south. By Gosport standards, standards, this was, of course, unusual, and I thought that the Colonel must be mellowing with advancing ears. Not by any means, however. His inquiries completed, we walked back to the Putsmoth, Pussmoth and embarked. Now, Hamble Aerodrome was quite a large one by the standards of the day, and which this would have meant at least five minutes taxiing to get the downwind end. This, of course, was too much for SB, who, to my horror, opened up and took off downwind, surrounded on either side by average tutors and cadets landing the right way. I just hate to think what their occupants were thinking. The behaviour of Gosport was, as far as I remember, more or less orthodox. The mess no longer existed, so we took off and returned only to Devizes, where the Colonel kept his puss in a field near his home. The day being fine, we climbed to 10,000 feet and started to admire the view. Suddenly there was a smell of burning in the cabin, whereupon the Colonel turned everything off, which was quite a good thing to do. We later discovered the smell was caused by hot air which came into the cabin via the cabin heater. However, for the time being, everything remained off, and it was not until we were down to 500 feet that the Colonel opened the taps again. By a miracle of good fortune, the engine was not completely oiled up and responded, so we got back the rest of the way at 400 feet and landed safely. And I... That completes my little bit of reminiscence, so I'll hand back Frank Frederick. Part of, of this evening ought to be these stories, and I know you're going to tell each other about Smith Barry. But before we leave Gosport, one likes to mention that it was a very happy place. Smith Barry uh, set up his own little mess there in a <coughs> house called Alverstoke. He and Philippi paid all the bills, and the officers just um, lived there until the school got really big, and they had to go and live in Fort Grange to be with them, with their pilots, many of whom were distinguished officers and coming to be turned into instructors. I think the last slide of all, if we might, it would show them there, Alverstoke, just before we leave Gosport. Granny Moore on the left, um, Smith Barry in the middle, uh, Sidney Parker next to him, and, and Kitty Smith-Barry, uh, Mrs. Smith-Barry, um, enjoying a cigarette and some coffee with them. Smith-Barry um, spent um, 
lot of his own money on the men, giving them free beer, free evening entertainments. Once he shut down the whole school, um, officers and airmen alike, and took them all in a paddle steamer to the Isle of Wight for a picnic. He could always be relied on to do all say original things. When S.F. Vincent uh, he had an Avro break up in the air, and um, Smith Bay wrote to his parents, um, let me know if there's anything the hospital says he shouldn't have, because I'll see that he gets it at once. And uh, another officer who's now well known um, did a course there, and they had a guest night, and, well, they escorted him to his machine the next day to fly back to his own aerodrome. A couple of hours later, the CO telephoned and said, uh, what have you done with Eustace? He's landed in the hangar without taxiing or crashing. <laughs> <laughs> and Parker, who, who tells his story, said that was really, we thought that was a big compliment because we didn't think very much of men running about holding the wingtips. And it is, uh, it made Gosport literally unique throughout the Flying Corps. And the great thing is it did reflect itself very rapidly in um, frontline efficiency. Some of you may have seen Yeats's Wing Victory. It was issued again this year after 30 years being out of print. And towards the end of the book, the camel squadron is strafing the Germans, um, trench strafing, with fairly high casualties, and they get a new CO sent out, previous ones killed. And he does an um, evening patrol with them just to have a look at the lines. And afterwards, he shows them what he can do. He uh, loops off the ground, beats up the Bessonneau hangars and slow rolls just over the top of them. And then he puts his bus down in a steep side-slip landing, a pucker, as the book says, a pucker side-slip Gosport landing right in the hangar mouth. And the official history says the German Air Force, it was still resolute then, but they lacked a Smith Barry on their side. So that was the proof of the pudding. Uh, they were producing now from Gosport these instructors with tremendous confidence and morale, and they were turning out young pilots with the same dash and efficiency about them, and it made just the difference that Trenchard and everybody else had been looking for a year earlier. Now, Gosport in Smith Barry's mind was only a beginning. Um, he had dreams of building an efficient air force that was going to knock the Germans out of the sky. And he was rather impressed with the way the French did their training. They had one big aerodrome with 400, 500 machines on it. And they flew out to satellites all around every day, just a repair van, a couple of tents on it, and flew back at night to the central base. And as he said in England, we've got 44 flying schools, you've got 44 adjutants, um, thousands of clerks and typewriters, and these people all do it with one adjutant and 12 typewriters. And let's do something like it. And he wrote a report on this. Then he put in another report saying, um, you can get rid of the whole of training division and just have two big aerodromes, one in Lincolnshire and one in Uphaven, 400 machines each, and appropriate instructors and staff, and you can train all the pilots you want with these two great central aerodromes and just satellites all around. He was then promoted um, Brigadier General sent to command a training brigade up at York, and his ideas didn't seem to be getting much of a reception in London, so it's recorded that he chucked his brass hat into the waste paper basket and said to Philippa, who was with him, come on, we're going down to London in your Rolls Royce, and they went. 
and he went to see Lord Rothermere, the Air Minister, and, um, and Lloyd George. And perhaps by a coincidence, um, uh, shortly afterwards, Smith Barry was installed as GOC Training Division, and Philip I was installed as Personal Secretary to the Air Minister. Well, now, there was an uproar going on in the press at the time and in Parliament, and uh, the giants were involved, Trenchard, Henderson, Sykes, Godfrey Payne, Admiral Mark Carr, they were all in it. And when the storm had subsided, Rothermere had resigned, and uh, Trenchard, as we know, went to command the Independent Air Force, and they thought they ought to send Smith Barry to far off Egypt. But then they knew the Americans were getting very interested in his system, so, as Parker said, they thought they ought to send him to expound his theories to the Red Indians. Well, he did this here. The first thing he did when he got there was to throw down the gauge to the Curtis um, Aviation Company and hope that Dundas Heenan will tell us about that afterwards. He handed over, you know, to Parker, and his letter's absolutely typical. Um, Dear old Parker, um, thank you for the preserved fruits. My word, they're good ones. As to Gosport, you have all my congratulations. Let it alone, and it will serve you well. If you make reforms, let them be in the direction of improving the course with a lecture or two and a bit more workshopping. But for God's sake, don't curtail the liberties of the instructors. And there you had a man speaking. Uh, at the end of the war, the Belgians gave him the Order of St. Leopold. Um, the Royal Air Force gave him the Air Force Cross and the Americans gave him a, a Congress medal, and he relinquished his commission in 1921. He stayed on in New York. Um, he'd found a system to beat the cotton exchange, and he stayed on there, and it's said that he made uh, a lot of money. Later on, he was um, considering investments to the tune of £150,000, so there may be substance in this story. He settled down in England with... Uh, Puss Moth in his stables. He got property in Ireland, Wiltshire, and a little Queen Anne house in Doughty Street in London. And he studied crystallography, mathematics, music. He liked reading old leather-bound books, 18th century French. And, of course, he studied the investment market, too. Well, he joined Brooklyn's Flying Club in 1938. You can see the war was coming, and there were a couple of um, <coughs> splendid reunions they're organized by Captain Duncan Davis and Lapine uh, Bishop they, there are some pictures of them if we he came along one day and we inveigled him into a Vika girl and made him fly that that's his, that's his usual headgear by the way it's the 1938 headgear you'll see another one in 1939 Sam is on the left front left Left front, Milner Dighton. Right front, Dundas Heenan. I don't know who the other two are. Typical one of him talking with a, just an umbrella, which he always carried in the aeroplane and his car, in a special receptacle. Talking to his famous C.G. Gray of the aeroplane. Another one, the C.G. Gray. And his glass of milk, which he had before. He said it, as long as he drank that before the evening, he'd last the evening out much better than anybody else, and he did. There he's arriving in 1939. <laughs> Another headgear, Philippi on the left, T.G. Gray on the right, another one of them arriving, Duncan Davis just behind him, 
Lord Balfour is on his right, on his left. He's uh, talking to Mr. Howard Balfour as he was then. That Avro, by the way, is the one that now is now in the Royal Aeronautical Society's collections. H H um, as numbered H two three one one. View of the nineteen thirty nine dinner. Well, 1939 came, Smith Barry wanted to get into the war. He wangled link trainer practice out of um, our Commodore Rob at Upaven. And then he started to get desperate. There's one of his letters which Sir James had brought with him tonight. Dear Rob, in God's name, give me something to do. In uniform or out of it, this house is filling up with women. And he wrote in a, a with black ink and all his S's were like S's. You know, and in many ways he was... Um, an 18th century character, and it was appropriate. I mean, he has a, a sedan chair clock that once belonged to him. It's still ticking, and it's appropriate. One should be timing the, this evening's uh, talk by it. Well, in 1940, he shaved off his beard, had his grey hair cut close, and came back in as a pilot officer on probation. He didn't go, care much for the probation part. Um, um, Air Commodore Rob and George Stainforth saw him through a refresher course at Uphaven, shades of 1912, and I believe they had their difficulties. And then he went um, ferrying, blending spitfires, hurricanes, and so on, and he had a bad weather crash in a blenheim. Lord Balfour said busted the same legs again, and this time he was disfigured by burns. Well, his friends of the old days... Um, um, looked after him and he commanded some advanced fighter stations around London after that as an acting squadron leader Gravesend, Croydon, Northfield and um, eventually his doctor said you'd better get into a warmer climate so a posting was arranged for him to an OTU in India and he acquired his own personal Anson there and was flying again then he resigned his commission in 1943 and settled in, in East Africa. Now, soon after that, April 1945, the, all the London newspapers um, suddenly featured three well-known characters, Colonel Wintle, the monocled ex-cavalry officer who debagged his solicitor, you remember, um, Douglas Bader, just out of Colditz, and Smith Barrier. Now, Smith Barry, between the wars, he'd invested £37,000 in uh, buying up insurance policies at public auction. Um, the thing was, you, you staggered these policies. He chose 63, very carefully indeed, so that they should bring him an income of 7000 a year. And the income tax people said, you know, you've got to pay tax on this, and took him to the courts. And Justice McNaughton said, no, I'm tax-free, this, you know, quoted the books. So, of course, um, the commissioners appealed at once, and the Court of Appeal reversed the decision, but gave Smith Barry permission to go to the House of Lords if he wished. But nothing came of this because, you know, his legs uh, began to give him serious trouble, and he had the operation that George V had to uh, block the nerve centers, and it would have been very successful, but... Uh, Suddenly he died in 1949. To sum up, let those who knew him speak for him.
was Gilchrist writing from Trinity College, Oxford in 1919. He'd gone up there after leaving Gosport, and what he wrote, as you recognize, part of it went into the history of the war in the air. He first started analyzing flying in the way that McCutton worked out with compasses and dividers how to shoot down a two-seater. And the gospel he preached was that the aeroplane was a nice-tempered, reasonable machine that obeyed a simple, honest code of rules at all times in any weather. And by shedding a flood of light on the mysteries of control, he drove away the fear and the real danger that existed for those who were flying aeroplanes in the blackest ignorance of the first principles. That's Gilchrist. Now here's a Canadian flight lieutenant who was once a tarmac boy at Heston when Smith Barry kept his aeroplane there. He never sought safety for its own sake. His concern was to forge a force of fighting pilots of flashing, dashing technique while yet preserving the essential element of safety. The last quotations from the men who knew him, Sir John Salmon, and later repeated by Lord Trenchard, the Gosport system spread rapidly after 1917 to the air forces of the world. He did more than any other man to teach the world how to fly. And the writers of the charter the present-day Central Flying School, they say that the tradition of organized flying instruction which was born at Gosport in the days of the First War has grown with the passage of time and is now a major factor influencing RAF efficiency in peace and war. One last sentence from his old friend Sidney Parker. Smith Barry should have written this story with a couple of notebooks we've got that Parker wrote. And though he's been gathered into the bosom of his fathers, he should never be forgotten by anyone who takes hold of the control, control stick of an aeroplane. Because there was a time when man did not know how to fly, and Robert Smith Barry taught him. Well, I'm sure you've all enjoyed listening to these reminiscences, both of men and of machines, of the starting of Gosport and what it led to and what it's meant ever since. I am personally rather surprised to learn that Smith Barry threw his machine about, taught other people to do so, with somewhat violent use of the controls. In view of the fact that the number of accidents didn't seem to increase at that time, perhaps the previous pilots didn't use the machines as well as they should. However, we have heard a great deal about Smith Barry and what he has done. Dundas Heenan, would you like to speak? There's so many anecdotes I could tell you that I could, we should be here all night, but there's just uh, one I think is quite amusing thing because it rather shows his character. He came to me one morning and he said, look down there, she said, we're off to France, we've got to tour and write a report on the French 
method of instruction. So he said, will you get an aeroplane ready? And he said, we want to be off a week today. Well, I knew what that meant. First of all, we had to get in some extra tankage in order to take us uh, over there and the journeys we were going to have. And then I had to build in, <laughs> in a, first of all, a receptacle on one side for his umbrella and the other side for the walking stick. Those two were absolutely number ones. Then I was going to sit in the back seat and in front of me I had a built-in wardrobe there were two long drawers and two short drawers all for, for the clothes the two long drawers were for his clothes one of the short drawers were also his clothes and the other one was for me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I put an extra tank in between the front and the rear seats and got that in alright and uh, ultimately the great day arrived and why we got off with all this load I don't know but we did and off we went to France and ultimately we arrived down at Poe where it was one of these enormous French schools and the man who was running it I can't remember his name now but he was a railroad engineer in the United States before the war and he was a very efficient man and very charming. Of course, he spoke English perfectly, except that he had American accent. And he had everything arranged just so. He had an office quite as big as this room, and all around it were blackboards, and men kept running in, putting little flags, you see. All this went on, and while we were talking, these men come in from different holes, putting in these little flags. And being inquisitive, I couldn't make out why one man came in. He'd come in three times while we were there in the morning, and he stuck in little black flags, you see. So after the third one went in, I said, excuse me, I said, well, I'm looking at all these little flags that people are sticking in here. What does the little black flag mean? Oh, he said, those are the deaths. <laughs> and that was true. I never saw such a cemetery as they had. <laughs> Well, ultimately we finished our tour and we wrote the report and we came coming back and we landed the place near Lille uh, to fill up with petrol before we made that very dangerous and hazardous journey across the channel and um, everything was ready and he, he said to me, uh, oh the SP said to me, he said, uh, we got a map? I said, no. So he said, well, I suppose if we go due north from here, we'll strike England. I said, well, I should imagine something like that. So off we took and we went due north, you see. And luckily I had time when we passed over the coast. And after we'd been flying for three quarters of an hour, I said to us, look, we've been flying three quarters of an hour across this channel. It should only be 21 miles. Do you think something's gone wrong? So he said, oh yes, he said, well, uh, he said, what do we do? I said, well, turn left. I said, we're bound to hit England then. <laughs> we turned left. And just as we got over the coast of the northern part of Essex, uh, the petrol ran out. <laughs> and down we came onto a field. Well, that was all right. It was just getting dusk. In fact, it was, we only just got down in time. 
So we went to the village pub and, and uh, we decided we'd spend the night there and of course we never reported to anybody or any nonsense like that. He never would believe in anything like that so we did nothing. The next day I went to a garage and, and I always carried a funnel with chamois leather in it and we filled up with petrol from the garage and uh, off we took again and uh, ultimately arrived down at Gosport to find that a, a general search had been put out because we'd both been lost in the channel. And actually I had to go up to London that afternoon and talking to a man in the train, he said, have you heard of the tragedy? And I said, what tragedy? He said, well, Smith, Barry and Heenan were both lost in the channel yesterday. <laughs> and I said, well, like Mark Twain said, you can, it was a gross exaggeration because I'm Heenan anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> One other little thing that might uh, interest you, the conversion of the 504K with the Clerget engine in. Smith Barry came to me one day and he said, Dundas, he said, I understand the ministry have instructed Abros to put a Clerget engine in the uh, these Abros. What do you think of it? And I said, I think it should have been done long ago. It would be an excellent idea. So he says, well, you know how long it's going to take, he said, by the time it goes through all the channels and gets down to A.V. Rose, it's going to be months before we ever see one. So I said, well, you can see one next week if you want. So he said, why? So I said, well, I've been thinking about it for a long while. We've got all the little sketches out. And I said, I was going to come and see you to see if we could do one. He said, go right ahead. As a matter of fact, I'd done it a lot more than that. And two days later, I asked him, to come up to the headquarters flight and uh, showed him this machine, you see, which was all ready to fly. So I tested it up in the air, and uh, so he took it up and came down again. He said, well, what will we do now? And I said, fly it over to Avro's and have a bit of fun at Hamble, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> Caused absolute consternation there. <laughs> However, they were very good, and ultimately, of course, they put a lot of them out. That's the one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then the clip wing one was another one of the ones we did down there, which was quite an interesting example. Well, I mustn't take any more of your time. I just thought you'd like to hear those few things. <laughs> Would Mr. Milner Dighton like to speak? I was at Tangmere in a squadron waiting to go overseas and uh, I arrived at 11 o'clock in the morning uh, and joined my squadron and at 11.20 we took off in a formation, I was, I forget what I was in, but five aircraft led by Mary Cunningham and uh, we went over to Gosport and on the way to Gosport I was uh, I didn't know who I was flying behind I had to watch him carefully I saw him easing off to the right and I found that the leader had uh, moved slightly off to the left to avoid hitting the spire of Chichester Cathedral so we duly got to Gosport. That was the formation I was in. It was nothing strange to me. 
would I'd been instructing for a year on odd things, long horns and short horns, to be given this spider to fly. Sorry it didn't carry on. It seemed a very good aircraft to me after what I'd been flying before that. And I would like to say what a pleasure it has been to hear so much of the background of what would be made perfectly clear to all of us. And we've always known a tradition of the Royal Flying Corps and of the Royal Air Force. <laughs> Dr. would tell us what happened with the Kurtz Aviation Company. It's a splendid story. This was the, when we arrived in the United States in 1918, five of us, I think it was, it was Scott, uh, Reggie Smart, Smith Barry, Philippi, uh, myself, somebody else. Can you remember that and who the other one was? Anyhow, we very shortly after we went to Washington and we very shortly got up against the Curtis people because we'd been requested to go over there to put the Gosport to instruct instructors in the Gosport system of flying and we maintained that it could not be done excepting with 504s. So we brought our Abro 504s with us together with mechanics, equipment, engines, stores, spares, everything. And uh, ultimately this argument went on and we sat in Washington in the month of June in nice warm weather and uh, sweltered there and this argument went on and on and on and ultimately it was decided that we should be sent 12 pupils and the Curtis School at Mineola on Long Island should also have 12 pupils and uh, they would see what the results were. So uh, we got our airplanes all ready and, and uh, the 12 pupils duly arrived and uh, the 12 pupils arrived in Mineola. The two aerodromes, we were at a place called Babylon, about 18 miles apart, 18, 20 miles. Well, <laughs> you can imagine He's fairly set about these uh, pupils, and they were marvellous uh, material to work on. And uh, if I remember the exact times, uh, our, all our 12 pupils uh, did their first solo with the, uh, in eight or nine days. And uh, having done their first solo, of course, they knew all about all the stunts to do. So <laughs> we sent them over in formation to Mineola and to land there, first of all to arrive there and then to do spins and rolls and then to land and to report. <laughs> you can just imagine what happened. They did this and they did everything perfectly and reported and not only had the Americans with their Curtis aircraft not even got one person off solo, but they hadn't even started to instruct them. <laughs> so, that produced complete absolute consternation in Congress because uh, what were they going to do next, you see?
But of course, in the end, big money and everything else won. And we had a very pleasant uh, six months in the United States. I've never enjoyed anything so much in my life because we were the only English officers in the whole country in our uniform. And really, we could get anything we wanted. It was absolutely marvelous. <laughs> so we, uh, we went round schools and did the very best we could for them. We did unofficial instruction and then came home and I must tell you a very funny thing when we were coming back I received a cable to pack up everything the war was over to pack up everything and send it all back to England so I thought well of all the blithering nonsense I have ever heard of this equipment is completely out of date now it'll never be used again why waste money having enormous packing cases made made and, and uh, to send all these things back to England. Furthermore, there was an awful shortage of shipping. So I uh, thought, well, this is ridiculous. So I just came back to England. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to signify in usual manner your appreciation of the talk and the reminiscences of the days when flying was flying. Not a question of merely watching instruments and doing what you think you ought to do from those instruments. In those days, people really did fly. Thank you very much.